Hey, this is Tim from Kalamunda Church of Christ, and today I hope that this podcast blesses you. If you are wanting to know anything more about our beautiful church, why don't you hop online and head to our website at kalamunda.church. Worthy. And we just stand here together, and we're so grateful, so grateful for the freedom we have this morning to come and lift our voices and raise our hearts and bring our lives to you. And again, in a fresh way, just pledge ourselves to being your people, to following hard after you, to giving you all that we are and and all that we have so that your name might be made famous in this world so that others might know how beautiful and wonderful and powerful you are. Lord Jesus, we declare it humbly but gratefully you are our Lord. And we are honored to be your people. And we thank you so much for your presence here this morning. We're gathered in your name and you are here by your spirit. And we thank you so much for your nearness. And Jesus, I pray that you'd help each and every one of us in this moment just to be so open and so receptive to you and everything you want to say and everything you want to impart and whatever it is you want to do. I pray that you help us to be keenly aware of your presence here with us. And give us the grace this morning just to be receptive to that presence and receptive to your voice and receptive to your love. And I pray this morning that not a single one of us, God, would walk out of this place unchanged because every single one of us would have met with you this morning. So Lord, we give ourselves afresh to you. We give our minds, our bodies, our hearts. Lord Jesus, we pray, have your way. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done in our lives and in this place this morning as it is in heaven, to the honor and glory of your name and so that your purpose might be worked out in and through our lives in this world, to the honor of your glory and the glory of the Father. And we ask it in your precious, wonderful name. And everyone who agreed said, amen, amen, amen. Hey, can we put our hands together and give our wonderful Lord Jesus a big round of applause? Isn't he beautiful? Oh, thank you so much, team, for leading us this morning in worship. That was absolutely wonderful. And uh, it is always such a pleasure and a privilege to be together and to be in worship again. So, hey, good to see you all. Hope you're all going well and having a good weekend. I hope uh, hope that you're enjoying the, the slightly warmer weather. Summer's on the way, and I'm loving that. I, uh, I went for my second COVID jab on uh, Friday morning, and uh, I thought I was doing pretty well until about 7 o'clock on Friday night. And then I got hit by the full force of the Rona. <laughs> they tell you when you get the second jab, they say, you might experience some mild flu symptoms. Well, let me tell you, I felt like I got hit by a Mack truck, right? So I was in bed pretty much all yesterday, and uh, I still kind of feel a little like I've got half a body. Um, So if I slur my speech or if there's any kind of static interference with the microphone, it's probably just my microchip, all right? So so don't worry too much about it. But hey, I've, I've heard via the grapevine, of course, that you have just started a brand new series on stewardship, which I think is absolutely brilliant, because a series like this highlights how incredibly practical faith in God and following Jesus really is. Because there are very real world and everyday kind of aspects of life that are profoundly informed by our decision to follow Jesus. Uh, Following Jesus is about more than just, you know, giving mental intellectual assent to some propositional ideas about who God is. It's about more than just signing off on a statement of faith or agreeing to some religious creed. Following Jesus has a profound impact on how we live like in the most personal and practical ways. And I really do believe that a series like that or this brings that to the fore. 
And so I don't know whose idea it was, but I think it was inspired. And uh, I'm, I'm believing and trusting with you that this series is going to be incredibly helpful. Now, of course, at the very heart of this whole concept of stewardship is a word, a word that we don't like very much. In fact, many of you would consider this word to be a swear word, but I'm going to use it in church anyway, all right? And it is the word responsibility, all right? Turn to your neighbor and say responsibility. I, I know we don't like that word very much for two reasons. First of all, because who wants responsibility? I mean, really, right? With responsibility comes accountability and liability. So most of the time, you don't want responsibility, okay? In fact, as human beings, we often do everything we can to avoid responsibility. Uh, one of my biggest challenges as a parent is teaching my children to accept and take responsibility. Like I walk into the bathroom and see their kind of like wet towels lying on the floor, and I'll yell out, who left their wet towel lying on the bathroom floor? And they'll both yell out simultaneously, not me, <laughs> right? But I'm like, it's got to be one of you, right? Somebody just take responsibility. But we don't like to take responsibility, okay? And I know that responsibility is not a very popular word today. Secondly, because we live in a world and in a day and age that is kind of obsessed with rights, civil rights and human rights, and everybody knows their rights and wants their rights. And don't get me wrong, I'm all for rights. I think we do have certain inalienable rights that need to be honored and respected and treasured, and, and uh, there is certainly place for rights. But we have become so enamored with our rights that we have lost sight of our responsibilities. And how many of you know for every God-given right, there's a corresponding responsibility? And you don't get to enjoy your right unless you embrace your responsibility. So you have the right to procreate and to have children, but guess what? You have a responsibility to feed them, clothe them, raise them, and educate them, right? You have the right to go and get your driver's license and own a car and drive on the road, but you have a responsibility to drive in a way that respects other road users and to do it carefully and wisely, right? Um, you have the right to education, but you have a responsibility to show up to class and to do your assessments, and do you exams, right? So for every God-given right and for every God-given ability, there's a corresponding responsibility. And I know we don't like that word too much, but at the very heart of this idea of stewardship is embracing our God-given responsibilities. And I reckon if you're going to be a wise, good, and godly steward of any particular aspect of your life, it requires that you, number one, identify what you are responsible for, and number two, to identify who you are responsible to, right? Now, identifying and clarifying what you are responsible for is pretty easy, right? You just, you just ask yourself, what is in my care? What has God entrusted to my hand? And uh, you can literally just list them off, right? Your, your body, your money, your energy, your relationships, your environments, anything that God has entrusted to your care, you are responsible for. Now, there are many things in life that you are not responsible for, like other people's opinions of you, or other people's actions towards you. But there are many things that you are responsible for, and you have to know what they are. So literally just list them, identify them, clarify them. But then having identified what you are responsible for, you then need to clarify who you are responsible to. And the reason that is so important is because understanding who you are responsible to provides the inspiration and the motivation for embracing what you are responsible for. Right? Let me say that again. Understanding who you are responsible to provides the motivation and the inspiration for embracing what you are responsible for. 
And as far as I can see, our responsibility extends in multiple directions when you consider who we are responsible to. So yes, we are responsible to God. I mean, every single one of us one day are going to stand before the throne of God and give account for our lives. And hopefully we get to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. You were productive and fruitful and faithful with everything that I put into your hand. So yes, we are responsible to God, but our responsibility also extends to others. So how many of you know we are responsible to those who have gone before us? Those who have served, sacrificed, given, laid down their lives so that you, cannot, you and I can enjoy what we have inherited from them. Even the fact that we're sitting here today in this building and you're sitting on those comfortable chairs and we have access to this technology and all this kind of comfort and convenience. Well, that's because somebody generations ago, decades ago, served and sacrificed and gave and laid down their lives so that you and I can be on the receiving end of that. Now they've handed the baton to us and it's our responsibility towards them to take what they have given us and to run well. We don't want to be the generation that drops the baton, right? Like I heard about a lady who uh, had a very expensive kind of 200-year-old uh, antique porcelain vase that had been in the kind of family for generations. And one day her 10-year-old daughter came into the kitchen and she said, uh, Mom, you know that uh, antique vase that you told us has been in the family for generations? She said, well, this generation just broke it. <laughs> we don't want to be the generation that breaks the vase, right? We have a responsibility to those who have gone before us, okay? Um, at the same time, we also have a responsibility towards those who are coming after us, right? Th there are five-year-olds and 10-year-olds on the other side of the building who one day are going to be doing what you and I are doing right now. They're going to be leading worship on this stage. They're going to be providing the church with leadership and guidance. They're going to be preaching and they're going to be teaching. And I want that generation to have a better start than we had. I don't want to leave that generation just a whole bunch of debt. <laughs> I want to make sure that that generation coming behind us gets an, a, a heritage of faith and, uh, and, and a heritage of resource that's greater than anything we had. I want the generation coming behind us to be set up better than we were set up. Right? Anybody else agree? Anybody else want that? Absolutely, right? So we have a responsibility not only to those who have gone before us, but to those who are coming behind us to be faithful with what has been entrusted to us. And then, of course, we do have responsibility to those who are currently and presently with us. So, so when I embrace my responsibility as a father, I serve my children well. When I embrace my responsibility as a husband, I serve my wife well. Uh, when I embrace my responsibility as a theological educator, I serve my students well. So whenever you embrace your responsibilities, you serve those around you well, right? So recognizing who you are responsible to provides the motivation and the inspiration for embracing what you are responsible for. And I know sometimes when you kind of sit down and you start thinking about what I am responsible for, it can be a little overwhelming, especially as you get older. Right? When I was like 17, I was responsible for my bedroom, my studies at school, my pet dog called Stretch, and that was about it, right? <laughs> That's all I was responsible for. But then I got married, and then I had kids, and then I got a job, and then bought a home, and suddenly all my responsibilities started expanding. And sometimes you can have a look at all the things that you are responsible for, and it can feel overwhelming. And given the nature of responsibility, you just want to kind of run away from it all. But you know what I've discovered about responsibility? When you treat responsibility like a duty, you resent it and neglect it. 
But when you see responsibility as an opportunity, you embrace it and you grow through it. Right? So you've got to change your perspective on responsibility. Don't see responsibility as a duty. See it as an opportunity. Because when, when, I, when I am responsible towards my uh, children, I, I don't just have a responsibility kind of to them. I have an opportunity with them. I don't just have responsibility for my wife. I have an opportunity with my wife. Opportunity for influence, opportunity for empowerment, opportunity for love. So you've got to change the way you see responsibility. Don't see responsibility just as duty. See it as opportunity, and it'll change the way you relate to responsibility, right? Can I get an amen? All right. So at the very heart of this idea of stewardship is this idea of responsibility. Now, I came across a, a funny little story that you may have heard at some point in your life about four people called everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. Okay, one day there was an important job to be done, and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did. Somebody got angry about it because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought that anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't. In the end, everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. <laughs> In other words, who's going to take responsibility, right? Now, I want to ask a question that you may not hear asked often in the context of church life. And the question is, who is responsible for caring for the environment? Who is responsible for environmental stewardship. Now, this isn't a particular subject that you'll necessarily find dealt with often in the context of church life, but it's a subject that's very close to my heart and one that I reckon is incredibly important, particularly when we're considering this uh, mandate from God to embrace stewardship. And uh, to be honest with you, I've been talking about this particular issue for the last 15 years, and I have lost count of the number of emails I've received or conversations that I've had with people who have said to me, we shouldn't even be having this conversation, right? Whenever the subject of environmental concern and, and Christianity comes up often in the context of church life, it's very often met with varied response. So on the one hand, you get people who are like super enthusiastic and they're positive and they're like, yeah, absolutely, Tim, as followers of Jesus, we should be on the forefront of kind of responding to the environmental challenges of the 21st century. And then you get people who are like deeply concerned and cautious and suspicious and everything in between. And I found over the years that the concerns that Christians raise when it comes to the subject of faith and the environment usually fall into one of four categories. And number one, the first is they say this, it's depressing. They say, Tim, who wants to talk about, right? Global warming and climate change, food scarcity, water shortage, desertification, deforestation, it's all so doom and gloom. And of course, when you consider the scope and the scale of the environmental challenges facing the world today, you can feel overwhelmed and find yourself asking the question, what is it that I can really do? Can I possibly really make a difference? Like, it feels like you're blowing spitballs into a hurricane, right? And of course, added to that, you know, it, there are many people in the environmentalist activist movement that just seem to be so angry, <laughs> right? You've all seen them on the news. And, uh, and they haven't quite realized that you are never persuasive when you are abrasive. 
And so we choose to tune them out. We choose to put our head in the sand. We turn a blind eye. We ignore the whole issue because for us, it's like, it's just too much, right? It's too depressing. The second concern that people raise is that they say it's uh, demeaning. It's demeaning. And by that, I mean some Christians are concerned that if we start giving rights and uh, resources to non-human life forms like plants and animals, that we might somehow be kind of taking away from humanity's unique place and purpose in the divine scheme of things. Because, of course, every you know, $10 million that you spend, say, preserving habitat in Borneo for orangutans, is, is $10 million that's not being spent on feeding starving children in Africa. So it becomes an ethical dilemma. And so the concern here is that if we start giving time and energy and attention and rights and resources to non-human life forms like plants and animals, that we're somehow demeaning the unique place and purpose of humanity or the priority of humanity in the divine scheme of things, right? So some people say, well, we shouldn't be doing this because it's demeaning. The third concern that people raise is that it's dangerous, they say, well, Tim, if we, if we as Christians and followers of Jesus kind of get involved in, in, in environmental matters, we are going to potentially open ourselves up to some kind of ungodly or unholy or unrighteous influence, right? And that concern is fueled by these somewhat negative connotations that we have kind of attached to the whole notion of environmentalism. Like if I even just say the word environmentalist, or environmentalism, or greenie, or something like that, your mind almost automatically gravitates towards, you know, like hippies dancing semi-naked around the fire in the forest, right? Eating tree bark and drinking mineral water, okay? That's kind of like where our heads go. Um, we tend to associate environmentalism with new age philosophy, pagan spirituality, like radical left-wing ideology. And so some Christians fear that if we get involved in environmental issues, that we're somehow going to open ourselves up to some kind of ungodly, unholy, unrighteous influence. And kind of worst case scenario, we all end up worshiping the earth mother goddess Gaia or something like that, all right? So that's the concern there. And then fourthly, the fourth concern is that they say, well, it's distracting, right? It's distracting that if we as Christians get involved in any kind of environmental stewardship that we are, we're taking time and energy and resource away from the main game. And of course, this particular concern kind of assumes a very narrow definition of the gospel. Um, it assumes a very narrow understanding of the mission of God in the world and therefore the mission of the church. And so people who express this concern, you know, would say, well, well Tim, the church's primary goal is to preach the gospel and, and save souls for eternity. Right? So it assumes that God cares about nothing less than or nothing more than uh, the eternal destiny of human souls. Right? So if you're sitting here today and you feel any degree of concern or caution or suspicion, if you, if you hear these four, these four kind of objections and they kind of resonate with you on some level, I want you just to take a deep breath and just relax because you're in good company. <laughs> you're not alone, right? There are other people who share your concerns and with good reason. Okay? But what I'm hoping is that by the time that we're finished with this conversation today, that you are to some degree assured that we need not fear these concerns. That uh, Christians involved in environmental stewardship is not distracting and it's not demeaning and it's not dangerous and it's, it's not um, in, in any way depressing. And that not only is it appropriate for Christians to be at the leading edge of environmental concern, but it is preferable 
And I would even go so far as to say it is vital, right? And so whenever we talk about faith and environmentalism or Christians and the environment, it's imperative that we, we start with Scripture. Any perspective on Christians and the environment has to be informed by the Bible. And so probably the best place to start is to just simply highlight four big theological truths that sit at the very base of a Christian perspective on planet Earth. If we were to ask the question, how does the Bible encourage us to think about planet Earth? The answer would be these four big biblical perspectives, and I want to share them with you this morning. So number one, the first is this idea of Earth as creation. Earth as creation. Genesis 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, what the Bible is telling us right off the bat, very first statement, is that earth is not an accident. We are not here by coincidence. This is not the product of randomness. We are here by divine design. That earth was dreamt up in the heart and mind of God, conceived in His mind, and then brought into reality. All of it in all its splendor and its diversity and its beauty and its wonder, was all designed by God. Um, we are here as human beings with purpose, with meaning, with intention. We are not an accident. You are not a coincidence. You are here by divine design. And the whole purpose of the opening uh, chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, is to tell us precisely that God created, why God created, and the fact that you and I occupy an important place in that creation. Now, um, the purpose of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is not to tell us how God created or how long God took to create. And the truth of the matter is we could have lots of fascinating debates about whether or not God created in six literal 24-hour periods or uh, whether He created through, you know, natural, biological, and geological processes over hundreds of millions of years. We can have lots of fascinating conversation about that, but it's kind of beside the point, right? The purpose of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is to establish this truth that God created why God created, and the fact that you and I occupy a very important place in that creation. So this is the first big kind of theological foundational truth concerning a Christian perspective on planet Earth, that Earth is creation, the intentional, deliberately designed, and sustained product of God's intention. All right, Earth is creation. The second big kind of theological foundation and uh, biblical perspective that God would have us hold as followers of Jesus in relation to the planet, is this idea of creation as revelation. Creation as revelation. So in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, God has revealed Himself through the things He has made, even His divine attributes. Wow, that's a profound statement. Because Paul is telling us there that not only has God revealed Himself through the creation, i.e. His existence and His presence, but God has even revealed His character, His personality, His nature. In other words, you can look at creation and not only tell that there is a Creator, the existence and presence of a Creator, but you can actually tell what kind of a Creator He is. So there is great value, like literally great value, spiritual value, in stopping to smell the roses, Literally, <laughs> getting your feet into the sand, floating on your back in the ocean, lying in an open field, staring up at the stars on a clear night, and asking yourself the question, what does all of this tell me about God? 
Because when you see the, the infinite creativity in the creation, the fact that, you know, no two fingerprints are the same, no two eye patterns are the same, no two voice patterns are the same, no two snowflakes are the same, that speaks to us of God's infinite creativity. And you can conclude God is an artist. But then when you look at the, the, the design and the symmetry and the order and the fine-tuning and the mechanics and the physics, you can conclude, well, God is an engineer and God is an architect. All of that tells us something about who God is, right? And David in Psalm 19, verse 1 to 3, celebrates the universality of this revelation when he says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies declare His handiwork. Day to day utter speech, and night to night reveals knowledge, and there is nowhere in the world where their voice is not heard. In other words, David is saying, doesn't matter who you are, where you live, what you believe, every single one of us is exposed to the creation and therefore the revelation of God in the creation. And in fact, in Romans 1 verse 20, Paul goes so far as to say that the revelation of God contained in the creation is so profound and so compelling and so convincing that no one will be able to stand before God at the end of their life and say, we had no way of knowing. No one. Right? In fact, if you look at creation and you conclude that there is no creator, that would be the equivalent of like walking down the beach on a morning and coming across a sandcastle, like a big, large, you know, kind of ornate, elaborate sandcastle, and saying to yourself, oh, look what the tide brought in overnight. Like, no one would do that, right? Look what the wind and waves created while we were sleeping. No one would do that, right? You would look at that sandcastle, you would see the design and the intention and the, and, the, and the balance and the symmetry, and you would conclude there's a mind behind the design. Somebody was responsible for this. And that's what Paul's getting at in Romans 1. When you look at creation, you can see the handiwork of the Creator. You can see the evidence for the Creator. And uh, Wendell Berry, who's a, a famous Christian naturalist, said, God has written two books a book of words that we call the Bible, and a book of works that we call creation. If we only read one and not the other, due to laziness or ignorance or indifference, we end up missing out on the revelation of God uh, in its full disclosure. And so there is something profound about taking the time to consider what is the creation telling us about God? Because creation is revelation, right? That's the second big kind of theological foundation stone. Then the third is this, the third kind of biblical perspective that the Scriptures encourage us to embrace as followers of Jesus when it comes to the planet is the idea of earth as God's possession. Earth as God's possession. The psalmist said in Psalm 24 verse 1, he said, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth and everything in it belongs to God. Hey, I've got a news flash for you. The earth does not belong to BHP Billiton and it does not belong to FMG. And it doesn't belong to any federal government or any state government or any ethnic group. The earth belongs to the Lord and everything in it. He has ownership rights. We have stewardship responsibilities. In other words, it's not ours to do with as we want. Now, yes, it is true. God has given us the earth as a resource. We are supposed to use it as a resource. We have the right to use it as a resource. But along with that right comes a responsibility. And that responsibility is to use that resource wisely and lovingly, which implies sustainably. Because you cannot be wise and loving with earth as a resource if you are not sustainable with it, right? So we have the right to use it as a resource, but ultimately it is God's 
right? It belongs to him. Uh, let me explain it to you this way. Imagine you had a friend who owned a Ferrari, and uh, he came to you one day and he said, uh, I'm going to Europe for eight weeks. I need you to look after my car. Would you take care of my Ferrari? And he handed you the keys. <laughs> That'd be a pretty sweet friend right there, right? Now, I can guarantee you that while you're looking after that Ferrari, you're not going to go do burnouts, you know, in the suburb of Kalamunda, kind of do, uh, do uh, you know, hooning through the suburbs and, uh, and wheel spins. You're not going to leave empty McDonald's packets on the back seat or empty Hungry Jack's, you know, drinks containers on the floor. You, when you go to the shopping center, you, you're, you're going to park the car like on the other side of the parking lot, away from all the other cars so that nobody dings it with their trolley, right? You're going to take super good care of it. Why? Because number one, you recognize it's not yours. And number two, you recognize its intrinsic value. And when your friend comes back after eight weeks and you hand back the keys to the Ferrari, you're going to make sure that the tank is full and the car is clean, right? And then you're going to go back to your 1997 Holden Barina with 350,000 Ks on the clock. And you're probably not going to care too much about how you handle that, right? Because you own that 1997 Barina, and, and it's probably not worth much. Now, the problem is we have been treating the planet like the 1997 Holden Barina, not like the friend's Ferrari. In other words, we as human beings have failed to recognize it's not ours. It belongs to the Lord. And we have failed to recognize its intrinsic value. Not just its instrumental value, its intrinsic value. Right? And so we have to recognize that earth is the Lord's possession. He has rights. We have responsibilities. And then fourthly and finally, the fourth kind of big theological foundation stone, if you like, the fourth biblical perspective that uh, the Scriptures encourage us to embrace as followers of Jesus in relation to the earth is this idea of earth as our habitation. In other words, earth is our home. We have no other. It always has been and always will be. Now, now I know Elon Musk and others are planning to colonize Mars and the moon. <laughs> and I have no doubt they will. I'm fully convinced we will colonize the moon and we will colonize Mars. But neither will ever be home quite in the same way that earth is. Because neither will be capable of sustaining human life naturally in the same way that earth does. And of course, the Bible is very clear about the fact that when God wraps up human history, when God brings this current dispensation to an end, finally, that on the other side of this life, on the other side of life after life after death, our eternal destiny is in what God calls in Scripture the new creation, new heavens and a new earth. In other words, you and I are not going to spend our eternal destiny in some kind of disembodied state floating around in some kind of heavenly ether in a never-ending worship service. Like if that was your vision of your eternal destiny, I'm sorry to pop your bubble, but that's not in the Bible, right? So we're not going to spend our eternal destiny in heaven in these disembodied kind of spiritual states just simply singing songs, right? Our eternal destiny is in the new heavens and the new earth. God is going to refashion, reform, renew, recreate, reestablish, redeem planet earth. And you and I are going to occupy it, and God is going to sustain us and it by His very presence and power. That's the biblical vision. And guess what? You're going to get a new body. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. You're going to get a brand new physical body. Physical, tangible, visible, corporeal, one that's conformed to the image of the body of Jesus. Now, I know you're sitting there thinking, really? What's that body going to look like? 
what's, what, what's it going to, like, what shape is it going to take? What form is it? Is it going to be like an idealized 30-year-old version of me? Like, are all the guys going to look like Brad Pitt in Fight Club? What? How, how are we going to look? <laughs> the Bible doesn't tell us, but it does tell us that we will have physical, literal, tangible, real bodies. Like the resurrected body of Jesus. And your eternal destiny is to exist in that new body. You are going to have an embodied existence in eternity. And that embodied existence is going to be on the redeemed and the renewed and restored earth. So earth is going to be our home. Earth is our habitation. Earth is our home now and forever. And you know, I've often heard people say, they say, all right, Tim, well, that's all, all good and well. But, but you know what? I care about people because God cares about people. I care about people because God cares about people, and I care about what God cares about. Right? God doesn't care about the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and the moon up above and this thing called love. Right? Right? God, God doesn't care about all of that stuff. Right? I heard, a, I heard a, a, a pastor, a preacher, a well-known preacher once standing up on stage, and he was talking about people who want to save whales and dolphins and turtles, and he was kind of making fun of them and ridiculing them, and he was saying, God doesn't care about that stuff. But here's the thing. Here's the problem that I have with that way of thinking. Right, because it does, it does kind of it begs the question. This particular question: Does God only care about people and not the planet? Right, that's the question. Is that the case? Does God only care about people and not the planet? And and the and the the problem that I have with those who say yes, God only cares about people; He doesn't care about the planet. The problem I have with that way of thinking is number one: I think it it's fundamentally wrong. Like I think it's actually flawed. I think if we're going to be faithful to the Scriptures, to what the Bible tells us, Old and New Testament, it says very clearly, God cares about all. Uh, the psalmist said in Psalm 145, God's love is over all He has made. His compassion is over all the works of His hand. Uh, Jesus said, hey, you know what? If just a single sparrow falls to the ground, a sparrow that's worth less than two cents, in other words, something of not great economic value to humankind, your Heavenly Father knows about it. That's the level of God's interest and involvement in His creation. Uh, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul goes to great lengths to explain how the death of Jesus on the cross of Calvary is for the reconciliation and redemption of all things. Not just all people, all things. That God is redeeming everything in creation and reconciling it all back to Himself through the death of His Son Jesus and through His reconciliation. In other words, there's a cosmological dimension to the redemption of God in the world. He's, he, of course he cares about all of it. So if we're going to be faithful to the biblical revelation, both Old and New Testament, we'd have to say, no, God does care about it. He loves it. He, his compassion is over it. He's deeply and intimately involved with it. He sustains it. Of course God cares about it all. Now, yes, do, does humanity have a special place in the heart of God? Absolutely, but not an exclusive place. Right? God cares about it all. But the second problem I have with that way of thinking is simply this. Those who say that God cares only about people and not about the planet fail to recognize an almost blindingly obvious truth. And that is the truth that human beings do not live in a vacuum. We live on planet Earth. And in fact, all known life in the universe exists within this tiny sliver of habitable space we call the biosphere. It is, relatively speaking, about as thick as a layer of varnish on a cricket ball. Like it's impossibly thin. It's made up of a tiny band of the Earth's near-surface crust and a tiny band of the Earth's near-surface atmosphere and all known life in the universe. 
depends on that biosphere, not only for quality of life, but for life itself. So you cannot tell me that you care about people, but you don't care about the quality of air that people need to breathe in order to survive. You cannot tell me that you care about people, but then you don't care about the quality of water that they need to drink in order to survive. You can't tell me that you care about people, but then you don't care about the quality of soil that they need to till in order to sustain themselves. Listen, if you genuinely care about people, if you genuinely love people, then you are going to care about the environment on which people depend, not only for quality of life, but for life itself. Right Now, I know for you and I living in Perth, we're not really confronted with the reality of environmental dependency quite like people in the developing world. Because you and I get to drive down the road to Woolies, walk into the store, fresh fruit and vegetables over here, just an unending supply of every other kind of food you can imagine over there. You go home, you turn on the tap, you've got fresh, clean drinking water 24-7. We get to breathe this beautiful, fresh, clean ocean air every day. So for you and I living in First world, 21st century Perth, sixth most livable city on the planet. We're not confronted with the reality of environmental dependency. But climb on a plane and fly to Cambodia or to anywhere in Southeast Asia or to Central Africa or to South America and immerse yourself in the reality of the developing world and you'll very quickly see that it's often the poorest of the poor and the most vulnerable of humanity that are confronted with the reality of environmental dependency. And it's often they who are the most deeply affected, right? And so here's the point. If, if you genuinely are going to care about human beings, then you are going to acknowledge that human beings depend on this planet for their survival. And if you're going to care about one, you've got to care about the other. And, of course, added to that is the truth that if environmental stewardship is a human responsibility, it automatically becomes a Christian responsibility, Right? Because not every human is a Christian, but every Christian is a human. At least the vast majority of them. Right? There's, a, there's a few that I've met that might be questionable, right? But not every human is a Christian, but every Christian is a human. And so if caring for the environment is a human responsibility, which it is, because it's part of the vocation that God gave humanity in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it's part of the cultural mandate that God gave to human beings. Go into the world, be fruitful, multiply, take care of it, tend it, keep it, be productive with it. It's, it's fundamental to what it is to be human. And as followers of Jesus, we should be the best example of what it means to be human. So we should be at the leading edge of fulfilling that cultural mandate. Because as followers of Jesus, we want to be good humans and not just good Christians. We're so worried about being good Christians, we've forgotten how to be good humans. So we should be good humans. And finally, my last thought is this, that at the end of the day, you can bring this all back down to the great commandment, to love God with all that we are and love our neighbors as ourselves. Because stewarding the environment responsibly is first and foremost an act of love for God. It's an act of love for God because it's an act of obedience to God. And how many of you know all acts of obedience to God are acts of love for God? It's obedience to that cultural mandate. It's saying, God, we're going to take that mandate to steward creation wisely and responsibly, seriously. And we're going to be good humans so that we can be good Christians. That's love for God. But at the same time, it's also love for our neighbor. Only caring for the environment recognizes that your neighbor is not only the person who lives down the street. Your neighbor is the person who lives downhill and the person who lives downstream. 
and the person who lives downwind, and the person who lives down time. Embracing the, the call of God to steward the environment responsibly recognizes that everybody is my neighbor, and that that has ecological implications. And so to embrace the call to steward the environment responsibly is nothing less than love for God and love for neighbor. And friends, I know in a lot of ways this morning, we've just kind of, we've just broken open this conversation. We've just kind of touched the surface of it. We haven't even had opportunity to talk about the nature of the environmental challenge facing the world in the 21st century. Maybe you can get me to come back. We'll do part two. And we'll talk about the nature of the crisis. <laughs> but at the end of the day, there's no point talking about that if you don't understand and embrace the biblical and theological foundation for why we as followers of Jesus can and should be at the leading edge of being faithful and responsible stewards of our environment. And so I want to leave you today with what I call the 3GI challenge. 3GI. Get informed. Get inspired. Get involved. <laughs> All right. Get informed. In other words, the need for education. Like there's a wealth of resource out there around not only the nature of the environmental challenges facing our world today, but of the theology and the biblical perspective. And I'm hoping that today maybe something has sparked curiosity in you and the desire to discover and know more. And I'm hoping that you'll go away from this conversation and you'll dive deep into this idea that as Christians, we are called to be environmental stewards. So get informed. Number two, get inspired. You've got to kind of fan the fire of urgency and passion in your own heart for this particular issue. I, I do that by getting on a plane as often as I can and flying to places like Cambodia and Africa and going to the slums in the cities and going to the villages in the rural areas and just reminding myself of how the poorest of the poor are most deeply affected by environmental dependency. It helps keep me motivated because living here in beautiful first, you know, world Perth, kind of shelters me from that reality. And so I fan the fire of motivation in my own heart by reminding myself it's the poorest of the poor who are most affected by this issue. And then number three, get involved. Start doing something. And you know the wonderful thing is, this is the kind of thing all of us can do instantly and immediately. Like whether it's, whether it's just choosing to be more diligent about your recycling or changing the light bulbs in your home to LEDs, or putting solar on your roof, or being more thoughtful about your water consumption or your energy consumption. There is something all of us can do today to start being better stewards of our environment. And in so doing, express love for God and love for neighbor. So I want to leave you with that challenge to get informed, get inspired, and get involved. And hopefully, by the grace of God, all of us will become better stewards of our environment. And in so doing, honor our God. Can I get an amen? Amen. All right, let's all jump up on our feet. We're going to pray this morning. And uh, in a moment, the band are going to lead us in the song. But before we do that, I want to pray. And so if you're comfortable doing so, just uh, extend your hands to God. Open your heart to Him this morning. Let's just come before our God with, uh, with receptivity and with attention. And Father, we thank You for the invitation to come to Your throne of grace. And we want to thank You that uh, as we do... We know we come to a loving Heavenly Father who cares so deeply about us. Uh, we thank you for your kindness, your goodness, your grace to each and every one of us. We thank you for today. Thank you for all that we've heard. Thank you for all that you've said. Thank you for our time of worship. Thank you for the sense of your presence here. 
Thank you for energizing our souls. Thank you for stretching our minds and enlarging our hearts. And Father, we, we stand here today recognizing that you have entrusted so much into our hands. You have given us so many gifts of grace, so many wonderful opportunities, so many abilities, so many resources. And Father, as we kind of begin this series of, um, uh, of messages on the call to stewardship, I pray, God, that you would give all of us grace and wisdom to embrace what you have given us and to manage it wisely and, and productively and fruitfully. I pray that you fill our hearts not only with wisdom, but with courage. And I pray, God, as we, as we get a deeper conviction about all that you've entrusted to our care, that you will help us to grow in our ability to manage it in a way that glorifies you, honors you, and loves and blesses others. So, Father, thank you today for all that we've received from you. We honor you. We bless you. And we pray that you would continue to just presence yourself with us as we share tea and coffee, as we fellowship together, as we hang out and chat and connect. I just pray fill those conversations and bless our time today in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. 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 All right. Let's lift our voices and we're going to sing. Amen.